1: You didn't keep your cool. It's just, it feels so unfair. Well, maybe you can tweet about it. That'll solve everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm just playing. I'm Gen X. I just sit on the sidelines and watch the world burn. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to Saturday Night with Sloan. Filling in for Saturday Night with Esming. I'm Sloan Martin. That was a clip that I thought was uh, pretty appropriate for this next conversation we're going to be having. That was a little skit on Saturday Night Live from just about two weeks ago. It was called uh, Millennial Millionaires. And it was basically pitting the millennials against uh, baby boomers, which I think we can have a good sense of humor about. I can say as a really firm millennial myself, I used to kind of, I don't want to say get my feelings hurt, but think piece after think piece, calling you lazy and entitled, you know, it kind of gets into your skin a little bit. So today I decided we're going to talk about Gen X, maybe that neglected middle child, that overlooked generation that is sandwiched in between – Uh, baby boomers and millennials. And to talk about that, I'm bringing in Dr. Lisa Waldner. She's the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Right off the bat, do you consider yourself a member of Gen X?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Technically, if you go by how researchers define generations, I'm actually a late baby boomer but I've never really felt like one of the boomers. And in many respects, I think I probably have more in common with Gen X than with, with baby boomers.
2: What are a lot of these attributes? You talked about feeling more of a connection to Gen X. Is it just based on, I mean, obviously the year you were born, but what are those things that kind of tie this generation? And what about Gen X? Because I really do think that they generally get overlooked or kind of smushed into other generations.
0: Well, the fact that they've been, you know, we we think of them as, sandwiched in between baby boomers and millennials is exactly why I think that they, I I think they have an actual gripe that they actually are being overlooked. Um, People define, I mean, researchers that look at this, they think of the baby boomers as this, and also millennials as as these big behemoths, and you've got this uh, generation in between, and um, both of them, um, Gen X, you know what, it means this is an example of when size matters. I mean, Gen X as a group, they're a lot smaller than baby boomers or millennials. And because millennials are very different from baby boomers, I mean, the whole skit that you played kind of is, is supposed to be taking humor out of how different those two groups are. And Gen X is just, they're not boomers, okay? They don't share the same attributes, but they're also not millennials, they're kind of in between. They're the sort of, uh, the Pew Reports describes them as sort of a bridge between the two. And because of that, they're just less distinct. They're not baby boomers, but yet they're not millennials, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, you know, and I think uh, there's a lot of great pop culture that can be attributed to Gen X. I mean, so many different bands, but they gave us grunge. I think about Molly Ringwald and The Breakfast Club. I think even Derek Jeter, so many great athletes. But It never felt like, and you can kind of talk more about this, having this, did they ever have this massive foothold, uh, this massive hold on society um, in the same way that boomers and millennials have?
0: No, they really haven't. I mean, millennials are so different from boomers just in terms of, um, you know, diversity. You know, boomers are more white. Millennials are more Diverse. Um, They they're so so those two bookends are so different from one another. And to be honest, Gen X is kind of a, a little of Boomers and a little bit of Millennial. And so because of that, they're not seen as being distinct in their own right. We also have to remember that baby boomers were sort of defined in terms of this this huge population explosion. I mean, there's these demographic uh, trends that just get reversed when the World War II parents, you know, the parents of boomers are having boomers. I mean, everything demographically is different. You know, marriage, the divorce rate's going down. Um, age at first marriage is going down, and the fertility rate is skyrocketing. And then that's, that's why the baby boom took place, but also this, this economic expansion. And then when, uh, when 64 comes around, and that's typically seen as, although there's some dispute about this, about kind of the end of the baby boom era and the beginning of Gen X – you also have this change and you don't only have this change in fertility rates and these demographic trends changing, you also have the economic circumstances changing. So in some ways, Gen X is like this baby bust. We have all this optimism associated with the baby boom, right? I mean, when you look at the literature around them, they're, they're talked about in terms of they've, they they're transforming institutions. They, they transformed, someone say racked <laughs> the family. They changed religion. They changed education. Uh, the civil rights movement comes out of this time period. Women's liberation, gay rights. And the economy is strong and there's a lot of optimism. And then Gen X comes along and, you know, the economy starts, there's a bit of a down turn. There's not as many of them. And so there's not this sense of optimism. I mean, one of the things that's important to remember about Gen X is that they're the first, gen- they're the first generation where we actually talk about them not doing as well as their parents. And that's a change because we've, we tended to think of, of children always doing a little bit better than their parents. That was certainly true uh up until uh Gen X and now we've got you know Gen X and I again I kind of feel like I fit more in with them than baby boomers who who can't uh, aren't necessarily thinking of themselves well I'm going to be secure in my retirement and I'm going to do as uh, better than my parents Um, So that's kind of the problem is is that economic landscape that we also associate with Gen X and the fact that there's just fewer of them. I mean, you're right in terms of cultural touchstones like, you know, grunge music and things like that. There's a lot of cultural icons that come out of Gen X. But the way we talk about them, it's always as if they're not distinctive in their own right. They don't even, if you survey them, they don't even say they're distinctive. They're not distinctive in their own right. They're always compared to boomers versus millennials.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And what kind of sparked me wanting to find a guest to talk about this is that you see a lot of polling. Uh, You know, I try to follow a lot of uh, political polling places, uh, research institutes, and sometimes Gen X will just be completely left out on Twitter. I saw this one screenshot of um, a CBS poll, and it just was totally absent. And the person who uh, posted the screenshot said, this is the most Gen X Um, poll I've ever seen. They're just completely left out. So I think that speaks also to what you were talking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of folks would argue that the media hasn't really paid much attention to them. Now, I read a
2: uh, an article from Vanity Fair. Uh, this is from 2017, but the article called Gen X, Our Last Best Hope. And the author writes, we'd seen what became of the big projects of the boomers as that earlier generation had seen what became of the big social projects. As a result, we could not stand to hear the utopian talk of the boomers as we cannot stand to hear the utopian talk of millennials. And I think that also uh, touches on what you were just uh, making an example of.
0: Yeah, I mean... Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you know every generation has something distinctive about them. It's just that the way we have talked about Gen X in the media, it's almost like they're this. They are overlooked. They we don't see anything distinctive about them, but there actually are some differences. I mean, they are more politically liberal than baby boomers. Um, they are more um, maybe not as much as millennials. They uh they are more conscious about the environment than baby boomers were, they're more diverse. And so in some instances they sort of are a peak of the trends that we now see in millennials in terms of millennials are less likely to be affiliated with uh with a congregation in terms of religious uh um, religious experience. Um, they're uh they're more likely to uh Think about the environment and to be socially liberal, they're more likely to support gay marriage, for example. But Gen Xers are too compared to Boomers, so they're kind of this transition point between uh, the, the less diverse Boomers, more kind of conservative uh, Boomers. Um, but they're more, they're and maybe they're not as liberal as Millennials, but they're sort of showing those trends.
2: What does this mean for them as parents now? Be- there might not be a whole lot of research just yet because there might be some pretty uh, young Gen X parents. Right. But uh, what would that mean based on who raised them, what they've gone through, and then now raising their own children? Now, Gen Z, uh,
0: what does that look like? Well, uh, the well, we, we think of Gen X as like one of the phrases that's typically associated with them is, is latchkey children. Um, they were the ones that um, because their 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 parents uh were experiencing higher rates of divorce, they were the ones that more, were more likely to be uh, home alone a lot compared to um uh, kids that were born during the baby boom, or maybe even compared to kids that are born in this millennial generation they 're more likely to be uh, left home alone. They experience a lot of divorce, and so I think for them you know they were they were shaped by those experiences and so again you 're right there hasn 't been a whole lot of uh, there 's not you know a whole lot of research out there because some of them are still entering that parenting that parenting phase or starting some of them are have had started families, and some of them are just starting to have families. Um, but I think that that those experiences of, of divorce and being left uh, more to fend for themselves um, will shape how they parent their children.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, sorry to
2: cut you off there. No, uh, go ahead. What I wanted to ask, just generally, what is a generation? It's the years we were born, it's the trends that have an effect, it's the events that have an effect on how people are raised and how they see the world. But from your perspective, what is the importance of kind of identifying these generations and, and having those ties
0: well, I think I think there's two things to keep in mind, and and one is that we don't want to overgeneralize. We don't. I mean, when we say somebody is a millennial versus someone's Gen X or someone's a baby boomer, it doesn't mean they're this this homogeneous group that tends to think and see things the same way. Yeah, but, we
2: can all get along because of that,
0: right? But. <laughs> On the other hand, they, you know, people that are born in certain time periods, they do share certain experiences. I mean, some some life course researchers prefer the term cohort to generation. I mean, the sense of cohort is that you you lived in a a certain place and you shared uh, having certain events at certain specific periods of time. So, when we think about millennials, we talk about how 9/11 shaped them. When we think of at least the early baby boomers, we think of how the Vietnam War shaped them. And when we think of Gen X, you know, we sort of, you know, like, well, we don't really, we think of Watergate, for example. But, you know, we think of, I think 9-11 seems to be a more significant event to some people than perhaps Watergate or a more significant event than the... Are um, not as significant as the Vietnam War, but the sense of generation. I mean, events do shape us. And the other important thing to remember is that these all there's certain there's there's an economic context that's going on. There's a political context, a cultural context. So a generation is is really shaped by all these different uh, social forces, and those impact people that are that are kind of going moving through their life life course, and at, at, you know at, you know sharing these experiences at a similar point in time.
2: Dr. Lisa Waldner, Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought that was a fun discussion because uh, I think there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a friendly rivalry with all of them. But, you know, as we talked about, it's, uh, it's all of us just trying to do the best we can.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was a fun conversation.
2: All right. Thank you so much. Uh, We are going to take a quick break here on WCCO. And I'm going to be asking Jonathan, our producer, because he says that he's borderline Gen X. I think that he's definitely in that and maybe like reminiscing about our favorite pop culture from that era. That'll be coming up. It is Saturday night with Esme slash Sloan. Sloan Martin in for Esme Murphy. Here on a Saturday night on WCCO. Thanks for joining us here. I really did enjoy that conversation about Gen X because they aren't talked about that much. And I'm giving them a little bit of time here. And maybe, you know, and I I kind of teased into the break, Jonathan, that, um, I mean, you said, am I allowed to reveal your year of birth?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay. So you said 79. 79. I'm
1: late 79. And we've I've actually talked about this before on the air. Uh, uh, Geraldine, a couple of years ago, had a uh, there's a company in town that works with uh, trying to help generations sort of ex- explain generations and generational gaps and um, how they can best work together. So uh, th- at that time, I was told that I was called a cusper. I was basically on the cusp yeah. of Gen X and millennial.
2: Yeah. OK, we'll give you that. I kind of view you to me. Uh, a lot of the, it's weird, you know, there's no exact cutoff like we talked about. They kind of uh, it's, all it, mold together. And it's, I think, it's
1: defined differently by different people.
2: And I think about that with the coaches in town. Lindsey Whalen, Richard Pitino, Rocco Baldelli, PJ Fleck. They're all kind of in-between-ish. Like yes. older millennials, maybe Gen X. Which is kind of interesting that all of those coaches are kind of around the same age. And leading major programs and Pretty teams. Much. Um But I'm wondering what maybe are your favorite pop culture aspects of Gen X. Like, I just had a moment with Green Day's album, Dookie, from 1994. Mm -hmm. It celebrated what? Well, that would have been its 25th anniversary. 25, yeah. So I was listening to it recently, and a lot of people had been really praising it as – An album that kind of defined that time and just has a lot of quality songs on it. And it got me thinking about that's that's that exact generation. So that was kind of my pick because listening to that album made me think of it watching the music videos for them. (laughs) Just this kind of like sweaty, over-gelled hair. And they didn't look particularly clean or well put together maybe right. that was just kind of I mean that was obviously the look at that time but it was just very like early 90s and I was kind of having a moment with it
1: so it's kind of interesting because I'm technically an 80s baby I'm a kid from the 80s uh, but I was there there are people my brother for example my, my older brother is a few years older he's 1975 in 1975 is his birth uh, time and so he has much more of a recollection of the entirety of the '80s than I do. I, I, I started maybe figuring out what stuff was '85, '86. I consider myself more of a '90s kid, and so you talk about Dookie, you talk about um, the grunge period. You talked about that mm-hmm. with your with your guest um, that came around in late '80s, early '90s. Growing up with with the some of the people around, some of the kids that I did, that was some of the the new form of music that, hey, you know, this is speaking to us and, and we really like it. Grunge, rap music at that time. Uh, but you had it, the 90s was so weird because you had, I'll just say musically, because you had so many influences. You had Michael Jackson still around. You had Madonna still around. You had Prince still around and and making music. But then you had stuff like like the grunge, Nirvana. And, and Gen Green X had Day. so
2: much to enjoy.
1: yes. And and Whitney Houston. Um, and, and that's getting to another thing. But you had stuff that came around like, you know, I'm a huge fan of Hootie and the Blowfish. That,
2: um, I have to say first, I feel like that is the number one thing I think of with, like, Gen X. Is they're the only fans of Hootie and the Blowfish are born in that generation. Well,
1: Hootie <laughs> and the Blowfish and R.E.M. and those type of bands. Mm, those yep. were around at that time. But then you had No Doubt. And and right after that t- time period with No Doubt, you had Monica and Brandy coming around, that sort of thing. Then you had the Screaming Teens with the boy bands and, and Britney Spears oh, and yeah. Christina Galera. So it's kind of weird to think back because it's so varied. That's what I think about when I think of the time period from late Gen X to maybe early millennial. It's actually pretty varied um, as far as music. As far as TV and movies and and pop culture there, you know, you got icons like Tom Cruise, yeah. and, and Denzel Washington, and I
2: think what Julie maybe Robert's. I think what maybe most defines um, Gen X is just very simply boiling it down. I think of The Breakfast Club, yeah, and The Brat Pack. Yes, exactly. And you know, John Hughes would have been a Boomer, but all of those actors are. Gen X and really those movies were so defining for you know younger kids, young teens, younger teens, and what those movies were about and how influential they were for now Gen X.
1: I, I think when you look more philosophically at it, people talk about the baby boomers as you know being this generation of change. You know, they came along, they they had the 1960s where they discovered different things. And and you're going to discover different things and new things with every generation. But Gen X, to me, um, it's it's sort of that, like you said, it's sort of underground. It's sort of under the surface. Uh, they don't really need to push agendas as much or push their, their viewpoints as much. But it's always there surfacing underneath, and there's some sort of Uh, angst or pain to it. Um, I think it's overblown, the amount of angst or pain. But you saw that in the movies that came out. You saw that in the viewpoints that came out, the television that came out, the music that came out. There was stuff that was underneath the surface that every once in a while it it comes up and it it hits you and it grabs you, but then it just sort of settles and then they just go about what they do. My brother is very um, workmanlike, and so uh you don't see the big emotion, the big outpouring that you see from millennials or maybe in a way, the sorta of, sorta of staunch stand your ground uh viewpoint from them. But again that doesn't mean it's not there. That doesn't mean they don't care. That doesn't mean they don't they don't show. Even though emotion. that's
2: sometimes the reputation yes. of the generation yes. overall.
1: It's there, but it but it's it's shown in a different way and it's displayed in a different way.
2: Gen X, you know, might have even grown up with rotary telephones if they were young enough, and then all the way now to technology. I think that people think a lot of uh, my generation, millennials, and I. I mean, I grew up with. Dial-up internet. I remember getting my first email address like super early on, like when AOL was just born. Having my first email address uh, at nine years old, you know, a lot of transformation with technology. But we see that with Gen X too, and how that came along.
1: And that's something that I think gets lost in it. I've I've said this many times before. I've watched TV series from CNN regarding the decades: the eighties, the nineties, the seventies, two thousands, and. You got to remember a lot of that stuff that came out of Silicon Valley and came out of uh, uh, the internet rising up and toward the internet boom, that's all Gen Xers. That's you know, you might have a couple late baby boomers in there, but most for the most part, that's Gen Xers. So they've really shaped where technology has gone over the past 30 to 40 years.
2: That's a very good point. I enjoy talking about uh, having this generation conversation. Uh, we're going to take a break here and uh, come back with more here on WCCO. Coming up next is my conversation with Heather Allison. She is the president of the Equal Rights Amendment in Minnesota, which is another thing that uh, – Pretty much all these generations could remember. It started, it was first introduced in 1923, but still has not passed. We're going to talk about efforts to get something done here at the Capitol, what it means, and she kind of answers those questions that people have, those reservations about the ERA that has held it up for generations. Thanks for tuning in here on WCCO. Welcome back. I'm Sloane Martin filling in on Saturday night with Esme. The state government finance division Thursday held a hearing on House File 13. Proponents want one simple question on the ballot to Minnesota voters in 2020. Shall the Minnesota Constitution be amended to provide that equality under the law must not be abridged or denied on account of gender? Momentum has faltered a couple of times since The Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced by suffragists nearly 100 years ago, but it's surfacing at the state level, including Minnesota. My next guest is Heather Allison, president of the Equal Rights Amendment Minnesota. Heather, thanks for joining us here on WCCO.
3: Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Now,
2: the words that I just read have seemingly been controversial since 1923. The ERA hasn't gone away. To you, does it feel like there's momentum now? And if so, why?
3: Um, you know, I really do. This is something, it never went away. It it sort of was always um, dropped as a priority. It was kind of left to the wayside. And now with, of course, the election a couple of years ago, uh, and a whole wave of activism that has sprung, especially around women's issues and women's rights issues and gender issues and all of these Topics have now really built up the law of momentum and steam, and naturally, the Equal Rights Amendment is a leader in that charge because it applies to everyone and especially so many of the groups that are currently feeling discriminated against.
2: Now, I took a women's history class in high school, and that's when I first learned about the ERA. And even then, it's been a while since I've been in high school, but It felt like something that was in history, but here it is surfacing again. Minnesota ratified the ERA in 1973, one of the first bursts of states before an original deadline. There was a long lull. Now 37 have done so, including Illinois, just this last May. At the federal level, the Constitution requires three-quarters of states to ratify an amendment. Now, of course, we're talking about two different things, this push at the state level versus the federal level. So I'll start, Heather, with St. Paul what is the status of the ERA in Minnesota? Do you see bipartisan support? Does it have a chance in this crowded session?
3: These are great questions. You know, yes, so you're correct. Minnesota ratified for the for the federal ERA back in 73. And what we're trying to do now, or not now, but actually for about the last 30 years, um, there has been a push to put an Equal Rights Amendment into the Minnesota state constitution. 24 other states have some form of an Equal Rights Amendment in their state constitutions. And as Minnesota was one of those first in that first charge, um, it seemed only natural and right that it would put one into its state constitution, and it just never did. Uh, so that is where we are at now. We had bipartisan support uh, when some of the bills were introduced in the Senate, when our, when our state bill was introduced in the Senate. Unfortunately, that um, we have lost some of that bipartisan support. Uh, so it is always a challenge. It It's always been bipartisan. It's always been a nonpartisan issue, because again, it applies to everyone. It was originally introduced by the Republican Party and on the Republican platform for many years. It was always a shared piece of legislation. And now actually nationally, there are the federal ERA. There's a lot of bipartisan support happening at the federal level. But here in Minnesota, it's been a little more of a challenge. As far as our hopes for getting it through this session, we have a lot of um, confidence in it getting through in the House. Um, We are going on to the next committee hearing. We're hoping to get it on the House floor for a vote um, here in the next few weeks. And really then the push is the Senate. We so far have not been able to have um, a hearing in the Senate. Leadership has not given us a hearing um, in the committee there. So that one has been a little trickier.
2: Heather Allison, president of the Equal Rights Amendment, Minnesota, joining us here on WCCO. It was interesting to hear you talk about bipartisan support because I had recently read a Washington Post op-ed from Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska Republican. And she wrote about how it just is such a simple thing to put in. It's simply not discriminating based on gender. And she just laid it out there as simple as that. Is it difficult to kind of get that message across to dig through all these other reservations and concerns to say this is really simply what it comes down to.
3: Yes, absolutely. You know, it's funny, the the waters get very muddied with this one, and it just, I don't understand why, because it is, a, it's very clean language. It's very simple. It really is just about embedding into our framework from which all of our laws are created and born, our constitution, to embed in there Something that says that you know no one can be discriminated against based on their gender. And it is it's so simple, um, but there has always been an issue with myths and um, you know a lot of a lot of unknowns, a lot of fear has been put around, and, and it's all completely unwarranted because it does. It just breaks down to let's just make sure and ensure that everyone is treated fairly. Under the in the within the law, you know that is all it is, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of muddy muddy waters there that spring around it for whatever reason.
2: Yeah, I listened to that hearing on Thursday, and there were some lawmakers who were concerned about uh, how it would affect abortion rights if men would benefit from voting from this. That was one question. Should. Men even consider this if it's able to make its way to the ballot in 2020. And what about the rights of birth fathers? There seems like there was a lot of questions that, um, you know, kind of came from that direction. Are these arguments different now than when Phyllis Schlafly and the Stop ERA movement was really vocal and gaining a lot of steam? And how do you and other supporters of the ERA try to address them and kind of get through those muddied waters?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. It really isn't much different now. You know, some of some of the language may be slightly more modern, but the what they're really saying is still the same. There is a lot of this fear when it comes down to um, the abortion issue, when it comes down to what the ERA does with abortion. You know, and so for us now, the biggest thing is about educating and it's about educating where our laws currently are. So currently in Minnesota, you know, there was a Supreme Court case in 95. Now, you know, we have um, state-funded abortions here in Minnesota. That's already been decided. And, and nationally, abortion has already been decided. You know, this is not something that the ERA is going to come in and suddenly change. A lot of those laws are already in place. And what the ERA does, you know, until men can start having babies, those sort of cases and those issues aren't about equality. Um, so it's, it's, but it always got attached to it, this, this issue. And for men, the ERA applies to men, absolutely, especially in our current culture where we have more fathers who are staying home as the main caretakers with their children, you know, who need to get leave from work for paternity leave. The entire culture has shifted and we just need our constitution to catch up with where our world is now. These laws are, you know, we're already making these advances and we just need the constitution to catch up. So with men, we do a lot of educating around how this can benefit them and a lot of issues around, you know, again, paternity rights, um, custody rights within that. So there are a lot of educating, there's a lot of educating that we've been trying to do. We absolutely want to listen to people's concerns and and try to discuss what, what it really means, what the Equal Rights Amendment would actually mean. And there are a lot of things that we don't know, because until it's in... You know, there's going to be some change, but it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take a long time for, you know, as cases come up to start finally being reviewed through that lens of an equal rights amendment.
2: I heard one lawmaker say that he thought there was already language like this in state law, like things are doing just fine why do we have to enact this into specifically our constitution what is your response to that that there is already a measure of equality i guess was kind of his point and the fact that the era is not just symbolic to put that in the constitution that it would tangibly affect and benefit people
3: absolutely yes so the thing is is laws can always be overturned depending on who is hearing the cases depending on the justices that are sat where they are laws can be misread. They can be overturned when you have something that is constitutionally founded. So like race and religion, what this would give is it would give another class added to the constitution through which cases have to be viewed. So that applies what they call strict scrutiny. So it applies this uh, much more, firm look at a case to say, okay, we have it in our constitution that you know, um, no one can be discriminated against based on gender, just like with class, just like religion, just like country of origin. So these cases that come up have to be viewed through that lens. But what's happening right now with these laws that we have, there's a lot of manipulation with the laws. Laws are getting rolled back. A lot of these acts and protections that we have are always at risk. And unless it's in the Constitution, that is the only place where then there is that true touchstone of safety through which all these cases can be litigated um, You know, once they get to a Supreme Court level and whatnot. That is where right now, again, we talked about muddy waters. These cases that come through get lost in this sort of sea of these muddy waters because there isn't something in our Constitution that says this is how this case has to be screened. This is the class under which it falls.
2: Why is there such an effort to have this the ERA pass at the state level, uh, when the federal level, like you said, has some bipartisan support? It feels like there's maybe momentum on that side as well. Why the focus in St. Paul?
3: So really, it's the way that our country is set up. You know, states have a lot of autonomy, and we need these protections at our state level as well as our federal level. And we don't know when it will happen federally. And so it's always sort of been, let's get this done here so we can try to at least have that security, have that strict scrutiny applied as much as we can here at the state level and at least get that in. And, you know, Minnesota sort of has always touted itself as being a leader in how it performs in comparison to the rest of the country. And so it would sort of stand behind its values and the values that it's put out there to embed this into its state constitution would say that it firmly believes that all Minnesotans should be treated fairly under the law.
2: 37 states, including Minnesota, have ratified this. But it's been decades of, I don't want to call it futility by any means, but it hasn't been able to to get accomplished over these decades. And I'm wondering if you do feel a sense of optimism. We talked earlier about uh, this growing swell of activism during this time. Is that something that makes you feel a little bit more optimistic about the future of the ERA?
3: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I feel very optimistic about this. The fact that people are talking about it The fact that at the State of the Union address, you see women wearing the ERA, yes, but the fact that more and more people, when I say the ERA, um, they don't turn and go, what? What's that? I thought we already had that, you know, and that still happens. And that's where the education has to come in. But more and more folks are hearing about it. They're knowing about it. And that just builds to this momentum. And the fact that it's actually being given a chance, it's being given, you know, we're getting these hearings in the House. We even had that since the 80s. So it's that right there shows that it's being looked at differently now. So that builds absolutely to this optimism and hope that we can actually get this done.
2: Heather Allison, president of the Equal Rights Amendment, Minnesota. Thanks so much for joining us here on WCCO. Thank you so much, Sloane. ERAMN.org for more information. The ERA will be having its annual Lobby Day March 8th, uh, also coinciding with International Women's Day at the Capitol. Allison says they're hoping to have this bill voted off the House floor that week and then apply lobbying pressure on the Senate where they face some more pushback. It will be interesting to see if this pushes through this session when there are a lot of major topics for lawmakers, like recreational marijuana has come up, tax alignment, opioid abuse, a whole lot more on lawmakers' plates. We're going to step aside for a break here on Saturday night with Esme. I'm Sloane Martin filling in. Later on in the 8 o'clock hour, make sure you tune in. We're going to be talking to a writer for The Atlantic. She published an article about how kids playing football – is differing along uh, different demographics that we see a lot of parents that are taking their kids out of the sport and not letting them play youth tackle football or even high school football. But that is really not the case for all communities or all families. So we will have that coming up in the 8 o'clock hour. We're going to step aside here on WCCO. Welcome back to Saturday Night with Esme. Esme Murphy is off tonight. I'm Sloane Barton filling in, I wanted to circle back to the conversation about Amy Klobuchar and the major announcement that is coming tomorrow i didn't have a chance to bring this up when our first guest um Hamlin University law professor Dave Schultz was on, but it was something I did want to get to. It just ran out of time. I was uh, looking at these press releases that I have from the Minnesota GOP and from their chair, Jennifer Carnahan, and they're really uh, going strong on Klobuchar, uh, at least according to these press releases that I have first when she announced her uh, presidential, uh, well, I should say. She has not announced that yet, but the assumption is that she will announce that she's going to be running for president. And Carnahan says in this release that she has few accomplishments to brag about. Maybe someone should tell Klobuchar it's best to succeed at your current job before seeking the one above it. And then after these reports from the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed talking to multiple former staffers about her alleged mistreatment of her staff and outbursts outbursts and times of anger and even to use the word in these articles berating members of her staff uh they also seized on that as well um to try and make the statement that she is uh, not the right choice. But I did want to point out that uh, this was before those reports came out from the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed. I wanted to play Congressman Tom Emmer. He was asked by our Dave Lee on the WCCO Morning News earlier this week about her anticipated run for president. And it's definitely quite a bit different than the tone that we see from the Minnesota GOP chair, Jennifer Carnahan.
1: When I was asked, I, I meant it when I said, do not underestimate uh, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. She is uh, Minnesota's Mrs. Nice, right? Uh, she, <laughs> she knows what she's doing. Uh, and people who underestimate her uh, do so uh, at their, uh, their peril because she'll, uh, she'll surprise you.
2: And that's, of course, Republican Congressman Tom Emmer from the 6th District covering uh, St. Cloud up there in central Minnesota. So you can definitely tell the difference in the language as well that he chooses to talk about her. Clearly, a lot of respect. And that was the impression that uh, we heard from Dave Schultz, that she just has wide-ranging respect. This is something that was talked about quite a bit this week on WCCO. I know that Jordana Green on the drive time afternoons had a lot of strong opinions about this. She said that reports like we've seen from the Huffington Post in BuzzFeed absolutely have sexist undertones. That these kinds of allegations don't come against male lawmakers. That women, we assume, even ones in power, even ones that hold this hive in office, are expected to have an element of nurturing, that they are supposed to be approachable, they are supposed to be likable. And when they're not, that's extremely off-putting to people because that's not what they have expected. That's not the kind of attitude that they've expected or they've been told throughout their entire lives to expect from women, even in that high of a role. I think when it comes to this story, too, we'll have to see what her response is tomorrow. But there does come a point where a line is crossed professionally, whether it's a man or whether it is a woman. And going off the reports from the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, it's sometimes hard to read. I think everyone can sympathize with having a bad boss, a, a mean boss, and still having to do the job anyway and power through, but there has to be a level of respect for the people who you are working with. So hopefully the media will get a chance to ask Amy Klobuchar about this tomorrow and hear from her face-to-face. I will be there tomorrow actually at Boom Island covering here for WCCO in my usual role as a reporter here at the station. It'll be interesting to see what her response actually is and if she addresses it head-on or does take that route and says this is absolutely sexist and maybe that would resonate with people as well. We'll be right back.
1: All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time?